one kind word, one, one word filled with hate, uh, one word of encouragement, or one of discouragement, a word of peace, or one that stirs up trouble. There's tremendous power in our words. And the older that I get, the more I look back at some of the things that I've said and wish desperately that I could have some of those moments back, some of those words back, to say some things differently or maybe not say them at all. But we can't. We don't get those moments back. Once, once we let a word or many words out of our mouths, they will do their best or their worst. And all that we can do is watch the impact and then hope to mitigate the damage if they were poorly chosen words or experience the sheer joy of seeing someone built up or encouraged or strengthened by our well-placed words. Words are powerful. And with the use of them comes profound responsibility. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We have a tremendous responsibility when it comes to the words that we speak. In fact, so serious, so uh, consequential is the use of our words that Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We really cannot overstate the weightiness, the importance of the words that we use. And yet our culture has become extremely careless uh, with words, as if we can say almost anything and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if someone is offended or hurt, they can just get over it. Because this is a free country and I'm free to say what I want, when I want, to whomever I choose. And by the way, I also understand that we're living in an increasingly hyper-politically correct age when everyone is offended and outraged by everything, and that's equally ridiculous. But that's not really what we're talking about today. Not so much talking about public political discourse. We're talking about the words that we use with each other in our relationships and how astonishingly important that it is that we learn to think before we speak and often pray before we speak and sometimes even spend time in his word before we speak because there are eternal matters at stake when it comes to how we use our words according to Jesus. So we can use words either to build one another up or tear each other down. I was reading some statistics. On average, we speak 25 to 30,000 words a day. I think my daughter's probably two or three times that. How many opportunities does that afford each of us to encourage someone or to build someone up or to strengthen someone else with the words that we speak? Right? I would say that we have probably many opportunities before us to use our words for good every single day. And so the question is, what are we doing with that responsibility that carries so much awesome potential for good or for bad? How do you wield the power of your words each day? Do you use your speech to lift others up? Or when you speak, do you try to elevate yourself and make others feel small? It's good for us to think about that. 
before we speak, we should exercise great consideration in regards to the impact that our words can have, particularly before any uh, significant conversation with others that may deal with sensitive uh, issues. We should always pray before we speak in those situations, even if it's a quick, uh, silent prayer to God. Just guide me. I do it often. Holy Spirit, I'm walking into something here. Help me. Help me to know what to say. And sometimes we even consult God's word before we have that conversation and potentially misuse our words. Colossians 4, 2 through 6, Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul says, pray. Pray that God would open doors so that we would be able to speak the truth and that it would be spoken clearly and that it should be gracious always and seasoned with salt, which is a reference to Jesus calling his disciples the salt of the earth. In Matthew 5.13, Paul uses it here to suggest that our speech should be wise, seasoned, well thought out, compelling, stimulating, even interesting. Okay, there was... There was no room in the lives of these first century followers of Christ for thoughtless, careless, haphazard talking when it came to making disciples. They were prayerful, thoughtful, and generally spoke the words of Christ and the words of God in the Old Testament rather than making up their own clever arguments. And they always did it in a way that was compelling and relevant to their audience. We see that with Paul all throughout the book of Acts as he continually makes adjustments to his presentation of the gospel according to his audience at the time. Uh, he spoke one way to people in the synagogue and another way to people at the Areopagus uh, in, in Athens, right? Because his audience was different. And so my hope as we work our way through chapter 3 of James's letter this morning is that these words of James will help us to realize the true significance of our words today and the great care that we should exercise anytime we open up our mouths to speak. So let's turn to James chapter 3 as we continue our sermon series, James the Just, with a message entitled, The Power of Our Words. And we'll start right with verse 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now when James talks about teachers here, he's of course not talking about math and science, right? He's talking about teachers of the scriptures. And so as he opens up this new section of his letter to address these church members about their use of speech, he establishes right away the weight of responsibility for those who aspire to teach the word of God, because that is the source of all wisdom and of all truly good speech comes from this book. And so specifically, he addresses the elders, the pastors in the church who teach but in another very real sense, this statement by James underscores the gravity for any one of us opening up the scriptures and teaching others, even in informal settings, whether we're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever or mentoring a friend in a discipleship context, we're, uh, we're called to fulfill the Great Commission, every one of us. So uh, it is exceedingly important that when we share that truth of God's word with other people, it's important that we're actually sharing the truth. 
first of all, and not a misrepresentation of the truth. Okay? With, with great wisdom comes great responsibility. That sounds like a quote from Spider-Man, but it's not, actually. It's, it's close. I, was, I wrote this, and I thought, where have I heard that before? <clears throat> it was a little different than Spider-Man, if you've seen that movie. Sorry. Back on track. As Christians, <clears throat> we've been given the single greatest source of wisdom on earth, the Word of God, written down. And we are absolutely responsible for what we do with it. The truth is, all believers should be devoted students of the Bible. I was at uh, my brother's funeral recently in North Carolina, and one of his friends who happens to be a deacon, a leader in their church, uh, a man, in fact, who leads several ministries in that church. He's about as involved in the church as you can be. He stood up at the funeral and he, he said, one of the things that I loved most about Brian, my brother, was his knowledge of the scriptures. Because to be honest, the Bible just isn't my thing. He said, I really don't read it. It's just not my thing. And then he went on to talk about how much he'd learned about the Bible from my brother. And I'm glad that my brother could fill that role in that man's life. I have no doubt that was probably at least part of the reason that God put my brother in his life. And by all accounts, he's a, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, in fact, he stepped up and took care of my brother in his final weeks of life, which is uh, certainly appropriate for a deacon in the church to do. So I'm not trying to disparage the man, but it is almost incomprehensible that a leader and member of the church, a follower and a representative of Jesus Christ in this world, doesn't bother to read the Bible, let alone to study it. He doesn't, he doesn't have to be a teacher, right? Deacons are not required to be able to teach as elders are. That's a requirement for all pastors, according to Scripture, but not for deacons. That may not have been his gifting or calling anyway, but we are all responsible for what we do with these words. Every one of us who is a follower of Christ. And yet, unfortunately, I'm afraid this is a sign of the times. Biblical illiteracy within the church is at an all-time high today. And yet each of us has a responsibility and a calling to make disciples of Christ. And that means having at least a working knowledge and an accurate interpretation of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. Not according to clever quotes on social media or by popular people uh, that might have a, a scripture reference attached to it. It's okay to have those kinds of quotes. In fact, we, uh, we have people here who put uh, those kinds of quotes on our church Facebook page. They'll take a, a quote from my sermon or something like that. And uh, that can be very encouraging to read those. And that's good, but that should not be the primary source of your theology. As believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we're responsible to get our doctrine and our theology, which are not bad words, by the way, from the scriptures, accurately interpreted, both directly as we all read and study and meditate on the word on our own, and as we devote ourselves to sound biblical teaching. And yet, uh, that's becoming increasingly harder to find in many churches today, the American church has increasingly, just during my lifetime, been focusing on presentation over content. And so there are some very gifted leaders in the church today who are highly effective communicators. They're amazing that either don't have or they're not using the gift of teaching. 
And so there's, uh, there's no question that they should be in ministry, but I'm not sure they should all be behind the pulpit. Remember, James said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And it isn't about perfection. I literally approach this pulpit every Sunday with fear and trembling. There's nothing more serious in my life than standing up here trying to teach you the word. And it isn't perfect. And he's not saying that we can never make a mistake. In verse 2, he goes on to say, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. Well, obviously none of us is perfect. So there's grace and room for all of us to be taught and to learn through our mistakes, thank God, and to grow. But we cannot ignore the fact that this is a really big deal. And yet within at least a portion of the church world today, it's often treated as a side issue. I was at a conference just a few months ago, and I sat there and listened to the keynote speaker, a young guy, happens to be the founder and senior pastor of a really large church, and he said to all of the pastors and church leaders there that your congregation needs your leading far more than they need your preaching. That was his whole premise to the leadership curriculum that he's developed and was teaching us to follow at this conference, which was to spend less time worrying about the sermon and more time managing this leadership structure that he designed that'll make your church wham, bam, whew, Get big. No. No. That sounds really slick and cool when you're at a conference, but that is horrible and patently false, unscriptural and misleading instruction to a bunch of pastors. I've, I've no doubt that his program can make bigger churches, but it will not make disciples. The single most effective way that a pastor can lead and serve and shepherd the local church is to teach the Word of God. Period. His singular and greatest focus is to be on prayer and the study and teaching of God's Word. That's not my concept. That is, that is in the Bible. 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16, Paul writes to Timothy, who was a teaching pastor in the church, an elder, and he says, Paul says to him, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. We are to rightly handle the word of truth, which is the primary function of the elders, the pastors who teach. Well, what about the other needs? Right? People have needs. Don't those matter? Well, of course they do. And they're to be addressed, which is part of the reason that God invented deacons. It is. It allows the elders and the pastors more time to pray and study and teach the word. In Acts chapter 6, it sounds so arrogant, but it's not when you understand what they were saying. Acts 6, 2 through 4, uh, some of the church members were complaining to the pastors uh, that some of the physical needs of the congregation weren't being met. Some of the widows weren't getting what they needed and they weren't being taken care of. And so the elders responded. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You could insert there, uh, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to run the organization. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Right? It's the deacon's primary function to administrate and coordinate the meeting of the daily needs of people, particularly the physical needs within the body, uh, just like my brother's friend, by the way, did for him. That's appropriate. It is then the elder's or pastor's primary function to attend to the spiritual needs within the body. And although God can and does give pastors vision, of course, and direction for the church moving forward, it is not the pastor's primary responsibility to build a bigger and better organization. We've strayed too far in some cases from the simplicity and effectiveness of living out the gospel and we've replaced it with large, complex, cumbersome organizational structures that could never, never replace the taught word of God. And yet it's all too common today to see the powerful words of God replaced with the clever and reassuring words of men. This is one of the traits of James that I love so much that is practical as this letter is for everyday living, he always draws the listener back to Jesus Christ and his word. So let's keep reading uh, as he dives deeper into this subject of the power of our words. We'll start at verse 3 again through the first half of verse 5. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Okay, so James leaves no room for doubt. The tongue, our words, hold great power. Let's keep reading uh, the rest of verse 5 through verse 8. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Well, gee, just say what you mean, James. Uh, don't hold back on us or anything, right? He paints a picture here of the sheer magnitude of destruction that comes as a result of the words that we speak. And I think it's worth noting that everything that God created for good can be twisted and perverted into something bad. In fact, God is the only true creator of anything. Man cannot create anything. We can fashion things out of a combination of other things that God already created. We can alter and manipulate and reconfigure things. But we're always working with material that has already been created by God. Even if you have to trace it back to the most basic elements. We can't create anything. God is the only creator. The same is true with our enemy, the devil. He cannot create anything. He can only twist and pervert what God has already created. And with that in mind, I think it's interesting that there's another place in scripture where we see tongues associated with fire. Acts 2. The tongues of fire there represent the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were being used by men to praise the creator. In Acts 2.11, it says the followers of Christ were speaking in all different languages and people were listening and they said, we hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And yet here in James 3, the tongue is described as a fire, a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, 
and set on fire by hell. What a contrast. In fact, verse 15, as we'll see, James describes this type of use of the tongue as demonic. In one instance, the tongue yielded to the Holy Spirit, praises God and gives life to the church, tongues of fire. And in another, yielded to the enemy, reaps destruction and death to the church, fires of hell. And some would say, yeah, but these aren't the same people. The same, the same people cannot produce such blessing and such cursing from the same mouth. Well, here comes James again. Let's read verses 9 through 12. He says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening uh, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Okay, keep in mind, this letter was written to the church about the church members' behavior. These are believers who are double-minded. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the man who receives no wisdom from God is the double-minded, unstable man. And that phrase, double-minded, in the Greek is the word dipsakos, which literally means double-souled. It's spiritual schizophrenia. And according to James, it ought not to be a characteristic of the Christ follower, but it's rampant in the churches that he's writing to. Okay, We must be single-minded when we speak. Otherwise, you can take your credibility as a Christian and just toss it right out the door. If you bless God and turn around and curse people with your words, I'm telling you, no one will ever take you seriously when it comes to your faith. They won't. They may smile at you and be nice to you, even nod their head in agreement while you're railing away about that person that you can't stand. But the moment you walk away, they will dismiss your faith as totally disingenuous, whether they ever say it or not. Why? Because a fig tree doesn't bear olives. A salt pond doesn't yield fresh water. People aren't stupid. They aren't fooled when we say all the right things about God and then in the same breath rip apart someone who was created in his very image. J.A. Motyer said, We think of Jesus and count it a shame if his glory is despised or his name is used dishonorably. We write to the papers to complain of blasphemy on radio or television, but the same glorious image of God and other people we hardly think of and rarely hesitate to speak ill of. It's really easy. And I'm talking from experience. It's really easy to think on God and sing his praises to other people. And then think about that person we really don't like and share all sorts of ugliness with those same people. But we can't. If we're ever to have any credibility whatsoever with others, and, it, and, and by the way, it's not credibility for our sake, it's credibility for the sake of the gospel that we represent. Right? So what's the remedy? Well, aside from what we've already talked about, thinking before we speak to gain some clarity, praying before we speak if we need to gain some heavenly perspective, and even consulting the Word of God before we speak if we need to gain some wisdom. In addition to all of that, we must remain single-minded. 
which means we focus on the mind and heart of Christ and how he feels about people rather than how we feel about people. It's having the mind of Christ before we speak. 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says that we have the mind of Christ, which is simply a confirmation of Jesus' own statement. John 15.15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So through His Word and the voice of His Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. And so when we yield our hearts and minds and our tongues to the Holy Spirit, what comes out of us is life-giving. And it's consistent with what we say we believe. And then our words carry infinitely more weight with those that know us because our faith and our actions are aligned. So before we speak, particularly if we're getting ready to express a thought or opinion that is critical of someone else in the negative sense, we should always ask ourselves first, how does Jesus Christ see this person? How does he feel about that person? And if we're not sure, then we should pray and ask him. Ask him how he feels. You'll find that when you do that, before you speak, you will often change uh, what you were going to say. You'll often change the approach and sometimes even the content of what you were going to say because you'll be approaching that conversation with the mind of Christ. That is what it means to be single-minded. And I'm learning this in my own life uh, as I go. To be, as, as James said it back in chapter 1, uh, verse 19, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Right? Single-minded in everything that we say and do. Okay, so up to this point, in the first two-thirds of this chapter, James has very candidly described the destructive power of our words. However, there's an even greater potential for our words to give life and strength and hope and encouragement and peace when we use them as God intended to. Remember Proverbs 18.21 that we read earlier. Death and life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. That's the Greek word karakater. It refers to the tool. It's the tool that carvers would use, engravers would use to replicate or reproduce something in precise detail. So Jesus is fully God in every aspect of his nature, it says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which also can be translated as by the power of his word. So Jesus, the exact imprint of the nature of God, upholds all life by the power of his word. And then we read in Romans 8:11 that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. Okay, obviously we're not little gods, but we have the spirit of the almighty God living in us, which means we have extraordinary potential by the power of our words to speak life into other people's lives because we have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us even as we feed on the wisdom of his word. And this is the point that James drives home in the final third of this chapter when we're single-mindedly focused on Christ and His wisdom, we can wield great power to do good 
simply by our words. Okay, so let's read it together, starting at uh, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So James points out here that wisdom is not only something that is intellectual, it is also behavioral. The word meekness uh, is the Greek word proutes, which means gentleness. Uh, and gentleness in the first century Greek culture was viewed very negatively, okay, because it was perceived as weakness. And yet James says to these Jewish Christians who are living among the Gentiles in their culture to live counter to that culture, the exact opposite of their surroundings. He says, be gentle, be meek. Why would he say that? Because Jesus said it. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, James is making the point that not only should we be wise with our words, but we should also be wise with our behavior. So if the way that we act towards someone is not in line with what we're telling them, then again, we're not being single-minded. Okay, the words that we speak without the actions to back them up are empty words. So it's important that we not only use our words wisely, but we back them up with our actions. That's, that's true wisdom. Let's keep reading verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, if your hearts do not boast in your heart, excuse me, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now, again, I love how practical and useful for everyday life and situations that James' teaching is all throughout the book. He's informing us here how we can know if what we're about to say is from God or from the enemy. He says, check your motivations before you speak. And if that in that moment of honesty with yourself, you find that your motivation is in any way selfish. In other words, what I'm about to say to this person is really for my own benefit, not theirs. Or if what I'm about to say will in any way tear them down, if it, if it elevates me, it makes them feel smaller, then don't say it. There's your answer. If you're, if you're ever unsure whether or not you should address someone about a sensitive issue or about something that's been bothering you, then James says, this is how you know whether or not to speak. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, don't speak. If your motivation is selfish or if your words will tear that person down, no matter how good they may make you feel to say what you want to say, to, to get in a jab or two, to put that person in their place, to give them a piece of your mind, James says we can't do it. Because then we're falsely representing Christ, who is the truth. So do not boast and be false to the truth. And it doesn't get much more serious than this as James calls this behavior demonic. And people say, well, Paul said to reprove and rebuke. That's true, he did. He said that in 2 Timothy 4 too. But if you read the whole verse, it becomes very clear that Paul was saying, do whatever it takes in the teaching of God's word to build one another up. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort lift up and encourage with complete patience and teaching. So even when reproof and rebuke is needed, it should always be done in a way that builds one another up. 
the most serious offenses throughout the New Testament are offenses against the church from within the church. False teachers, divisiveness, partiality, ungodly criticism of each other, next to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, any activities that bring disunity, discord, strife within the church are across the board the most serious offenses in Scripture. And they're to be dealt with swiftly. We've talked about that. But always with the intended outcome of repentance and restoration to the building up of the body, the church, into strength and unity. Uh, Richard Phillips is the pastor of Second Presbyterian uh, Church here in Greenville. He's authored many books. He wrote, There will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. Do you know what he will be pointing to when he says to the whole creation, there is my masterpiece? He will be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. In the forefront of it all will be the Lord Jesus himself who will come and say, here I am and the children you have given me perfected in the beauty of holiness. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are made in His image. We never, we never have the right to tear one another down. Either in front of each other or behind each other's back. Never. We have to recognize the responsibility that we have to the wisdom that we've been given and always speak and act with Christ-like single-mindedness. Okay, and then to close out the chapter, James offers the alternative to destructive speech. What happens when we use the power of our words for good as the Holy Spirit leads us? Let's read it from uh, verse 17, and we'll close out the chapter. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the very opposite of the preceding verses. Just as the first two-thirds of the chapter really outline the, the destructive nature of ungodly speech, James shows us in these final verses that when we speak with godly wisdom, peace and righteousness will follow. Okay? Which is the polar opposite of disorder and every vile practice that James says follows ungodly speech. So, so listen, if, if we want our lives to be marked by righteousness, if we want to live peaceably with others, then make your speech pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, Good fruits, that's a reference to the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about last week uh, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And our speech should also be impartial, which James talks about in, in chapter 1, and sincere. Okay? Living peaceably really isn't that complicated. But people come to me in a lot of turmoil sometimes and they can't understand why their lives are in such disorder, why there's so much strife and vile behavior. Why can't there ever be peace in our home, Pastor? Well, if you're not speaking life into each other's lives in your home, in your relationships, if one or more of the people in your family are constantly speaking out of selfish ambition and jealousy, there won't be peace in your home. There won't be peace in your relationships. And of course, 
we cannot very effectively control other people, certainly not their tongues. But there's one tongue, there's one that each of us has control over. And that's the best place to start. Even when you're not being treated how you think you should. Even when you desperately want to get your two cents in. Even when you'd love nothing more than to take a couple of shots at your spouse or your mom or dad or your kid or your brother or your sister or your friend. If you will instead take pause and think before you speak, maybe even take some time to pray first, even meditate on his word if need be. And then when you open your mouth, be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. You'll find that not only will you feel better, but it will affect those around you, especially over time as you're consistent in how you speak to others. And as your words so powerfully begin to encourage and give hope and strengthen and build up and give life to others, you will experience more peace and righteousness in your life than you ever could by constantly trying to defend yourself and protect yourself by slinging darts at each other. And it all starts by recognizing that we've been given great wisdom as followers of Christ. And with it, we have a great responsibility to learn and grow in it. And then to be single-minded, seeing others as Christ sees them. And then when we do speak, we do so with wisdom from above, with godly wisdom. That is how you make every word count. That's when you'll see your family members and friends begin to come alive when you inspire and encourage them with your words. That is when your life will be marked by peace and righteousness. So I ask you, who have you encouraged this week? Who have you inspired? Who have you offered hope and strength to? Who have you lifted up this week in your life by your words? And if you can't fill in that blank, then how about taking time this week to offer words of life to someone and watch it not only affect them, but your own life as well. This is the great power that we wield with our words. It is the power of life or death. And we get to choose simply by the words that we speak. Let's choose well. Let's pray.